Choke points. Let's go. Snoqualmie Pass Edition. The construction season is coming to an end for the work from the past to Easton. It's been successful, but most of the work, alas, is invisible. Here is Chris to explain all that. And Dave, I'm not sure when's the last time you've driven uh, east of Hayak. It's been a while. All right. I, I do like every weekend. All the time. Yeah. Yes, I know. <laughs> Including potentially tomorrow morning, of course, uh, heading to Bozeman. But this is the 14th year of construction on that widening project between the east side of Snoqualmie Pass and Easton. Now, it hasn't been 14 straight years. They did take a little break here in the middle. But, yeah, it's hard to imagine they've been working that long. They are in phase three of this project, which is working closer to Easton. And drivers who do this, uh, you know, we've been shifted into a lane configuration for more than a year where eastbound drivers actually move onto the westbound lanes going down the Easton Hill. We've all gotten used to that. Uh, so you can't really see what's going on down the hill in the normal east direction. The Washington Department of Transportation's Summer Dairy says most of the work has been like that this year. Focused on rock blasting and excavating tons and tons and tons of material to make room for those added lanes and that realignment up on I-90 near Easton. Workers removed 450,000 cubic yards of dirt and debris just this summer construction season. It's about 15,000 truckloads. Uh, yeah, so they're, I mean, they're pulling stuff out because what they're doing is they're moving the lanes to the south a little bit. So they're digging down and removing stuff what is on the right-hand side of the freeway as you're driving eastbound. Uh, and so all of that's going to be in there as they're removing hundreds of trees and they bu- started building the piers that will eventually support that configuration. But Derry says, you know what? It's time to close shop for the season. We have two seasons. We have construction. We have winter. We have a very limited window that we can work in before the weather sets in. This is on a major mountain path. And so with temperatures and snow restricting us, we will be wrapping this project up here in a couple of weeks. And unlike other projects down here where, you know, you can kind of do some work over the winter and we really don't have a a construction season anymore, up there they do uh, just because of uh, the conditions. And, you know, People often ask, okay, why is it taking 14 years and counting of work to add a lane in each direction of the freeway? I mean, it's only 15 miles. There's certainly challenges. You know, why 14 years? Why this long? Well, it's a lot more than just widening. Uh, We're limited by seasons, and it's a major mountain pass that has all sorts of Mother Nature and obstacles that likes to throw our way like a mountain on one side lakes on the other it's not a very easy place to work so a large focus of this 15 mile expansion has also been on preventing wildlife and drivers getting mixed up that was a, a spot that's been notorious for uh, people hitting elk and deer and other such animals and you know the first wildlife overcrossing opened up a couple of years ago and it's actually done a pretty good job in preventing those accidents another large overcrossing is planned for this current project near easton and Derry says they're doing a lot of work under the freeway. There's quite a few undercrossings, areas where we've widened the culverts, made the bridges wider to facilitate animals that cross under the highway. Uh, about 15 more planned in the next coming years um, under the highway itself. Now, phase three is expected to take another five years to complete, sometime in 2025, uh, 2028. Now, remember, they're really only working six to seven months a year, so it's not really another full five years to complete, but calendar years, yes, it is. 
Oh, and this isn't the final phase. Oh, really? Yeah, because what they did is they've skipped a little section from where the last project wrapped up just after that first wildlife crossing to where they're working here near Cabin Creek. They've left like two and a half miles or so in the middle because there were some extra environmental challenges and uh, stuff they had to figure out on the downhill side. So they're like, okay, well, we try to figure out the geotech there. Let's do what we know we can do now, which is the work near Easton. So they still uh, have a little bit of work left to wrap up after 2028, but then we'll get a nice, really long, three-lane road all the way from Hayek out through Easton, and it's really going to make a difference. But then it's got to be maintained. Why don't we just call Bertha and do a 14-mile tunnel? Well, because... They do that in Europe. But it would take so much more than that, because if you're going to do a 14-mile tunnel, you then you'd have to might as well just do it all the way through Snoqualmie, uh, Snoqualmie I mean. Pass. Well, then that's a lot well, more than I'm just 14 pass. miles. Um, and then you run into ground table issues. I mean, you've got Ketchelis Lake right there and, and other lakes, you know, but Lake at Easton. Uh, and so I'm not sure where the ground table is there for the water table. I'm not sure if drilling like that makes the most sense or if it's cost effective. I don't know. Uh, but um, this is what they're doing. This is what they've decided to do. It could be, it would be uh, covered, no snow. No animals. No animals to worry about. You'd go under the streams, no environmental problems, yeah. and you might even strike oil. <laughs> It's possible. Yeah, I mean, we could just think what that would do to our gas prices if we yeah. could uh, get it exactly. here and, revi- and refine it here. Exactly. Uh, that's all. You know, I'll, I'll ask Summer. I'll, re- I'll reach you- out to her and go, "Hey, why don't we, why don't we just tunnel? Yeah, um, we'll yeah. see. We'll see what happens." We have been having conversations throughout the week about the public restroom problem in Seattle, as in we just don't have a lot of them. It was a subject of a Seattle Times article over the weekend written by Daniel Beekman and Anna Patrick. And I called up Daniel yesterday, asked him to explain how he and Anna went about researching Seattle's restroom problem. Uh, for one thing, sort of just did traditional reporting where we asked various city agencies and uh, uh, transit agencies and government agencies uh, in that serve Seattle what they had in terms of public restrooms, government-operated public restrooms. But we also went out in the city and did street reporting. We sort of went through the city north to south on a light rail, uh, got off at neighborhoods and talked to people on the street about this issue, saw what was available and what wasn't. And the third thing we did, and this third story hasn't come out yet, but we asked our Seattle Times readers what their experiences were. So we used those sort of three avenues to research the problem. Hmm. Not to not to spoil your story that's coming up, but uh, did you get anybody who actually liked the public restrooms here? No, I mean so the closest to it, and of course, you know, our reader responses are, you know, they're people who are self-selecting, and this is on their minds, and they might, you know, have an axe to grind. But uh, you know, and people maybe who don't have an issue with this didn't write in. We did have some people who said, look, it's not a problem for me. You know, when I'm out and about and I have to I have to go, I just duck into a bar or I duck into a coffee shop and I buy a cup of coffee or I buy a beer and they let me use the restroom. No big deal. No one really said, oh, the actual, you know, sort of government operated restrooms are adequate. Uh, And of course, though, some people said they didn't have a problem uh, buying a beer or a cup of coffee and doing that. Many more people said, well, I can't necessarily always afford to do that. Or I try to go buy a cup of coffee and they say our restrooms are closed even to customers or can't find a place where that works. 
etc. We just took an organized tour to Canada. So it was like a bus with 38 people, right? We go from city to city and we often go to the bathroom, right? The the, the, the toilet in the bus is just for emergencies. <laughs> so uh, in Montreal, in Quebec City, in uh, in Ottawa, they always manage to find a government-run or, or a tourist agency-run public restroom that was uh, big, open, and clean. And I can't understand why Seattle can't do something similar. Do you have an answer to that? No, not really. I don't think I'm, and I don't think I'm exactly the person who needs to answer <laughs> that question. You know, that's our, our local leaders. The closest thing that we might have in Seattle to that, although it's not exactly run by the city or a transit agency, for example, is Pike Place Market. Yeah, That's sort of the place downtown where, and the Pike Place Market bathrooms, you know, they're not brand spanking new. Uh, they don't offer a lot of privacy. They're often crowded, so they're not perfect, but they're, uh, you know, they're uh, public in the sense that they're the market is a quasi-public organization and they're reliable and they're fairly abundant. And that's the place that people know. But other than that, especially in the downtown core, there isn't something like you're describing other than, you know, people know to rely on the libraries, the Seattle Public Libraries. And I think maybe there's something in in those that points to part of the answer. And we heard this from folks in our reporting uh, elsewhere in other cities, like San Francisco and uh, and elsewhere, that sort of uh, a key to having this work is – Having restrooms that are uh, cleaned regularly and uh, staffed, or at least to have people around, yes, uh, to sort of monitor them, and that's something that, for example, libraries have. Even though librarians aren't, you know, bathroom attendants, there are people who care, who are around, and keep an eyes on the situation. Yeah, and that's why park bathrooms are a problem because they're usually in remote areas and nobody's taking care of them. That's definitely part of it. You know, we wanted to make sure in our reporting of these stories to, even though we were shining a light on some of the problems with Seattle's public restrooms, to not sort of slight the parks department workers who work really hard (laughs) and do their very best to clean and repair uh, the park bathrooms. And so I spent, and a photographer who we work with, we spent some time with a parks crew and we're really Mm -hmm. impressed by, you know, the care they took, but you're right that, you know, they clean these bathrooms, parks bathrooms three times a day uh, in many cases, but still they get messy uh, and no one's there sort of staffing them. We're hearing from Seattle Times reporter Daniel Beekman about uh, his story on the lack of public restrooms uh, in Seattle. And, of course, I'm all into the, the tourism thing. It's a it's a significant part of the economy. So I asked him, shouldn't there be some kind of a, a, a toilet czar or at least a, a, a comfort commode coordinator who's responsible for putting in and maintaining bathrooms? The vast majority of public bathrooms that do exist in Seattle are operated by the Parks Department. And the Parks Department understands that this matters to park goers, and they have embarked on a $2 million plus per year effort to renovate the park restroom. So, like, you know, they get it, but sort of weirdly, the kind of places that have the least government-operated public restroom access are sort of the most urban, most crowded places. So that's not where parks are. It's downtown. It's in the heart of the university district. And that's also the places where tourists are. It's also the places that the city, in theory, wants to sort of revive post-COVID. 
And, you know, I spent some time talking to tourists and downtown residents about this, and they said, yeah, it's a big problem. Did anybody with the city uh, write in and say, uh, hey, we're on top of it, or, or hey, you're right, we need to do more? No. Not yet. You know, we were in touch with the various city departments and we got in touch with the mayor's office about this in the reporting process. But since our first two articles have published, no, I haven't at least heard heard anything. Is there any stomach for the European approach where you have paid uh, restroom attendants, which may in fact be recruited from, you know, people who were formerly homeless, sort of an entry level job, a way to provide someone a living and at the same time provide the city with a clean system of public restrooms? Well, it's interesting because uh, I don't know that in our research, there's sort of one U.S. city that like has figured this out. But we did want to highlight some examples of certain things happening elsewhere that are worth looking at. And one of them is San Francisco's Pit Stop program. Uh, They started it pre-COVID and have expanded. These are basically sort of trailers Mm -hmm. with with toilets uh, and sinks and that kind of thing. And uh, they went from three to, I think, more than 30 of them now around sort of the urban landscape. They seem pretty popular politically sort of across the political spectrum down there. And they do employ uh, folks who are formerly homeless to to staff those, I believe. Actually, Seattle has not that many, but a certain number of sort of shower hygiene trailers. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit based off that model, you know, only a handful of them, but those are also staffed by people who are formerly homeless. So like that, that idea is sort of there, but it seems like a a matter of scaling up uh, if that's the solution. Daniel Beekman of the Seattle Times. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. In Eugene, Oregon, one young boy's birthday was for the dogs, literally. As Finn Niedermeyer's birthday approached, the soon-to-be 10-year-old decided for his big day he would do something special. He told KMTR... He donated a bunch of cat food and dog food instead of birthday presents. Rather than get gifts for himself, Finn asked friends and family to bring cat and dog food to his birthday party. Then he took a trunk full of goods to the local Humane Society. When Finn approached his mom, Angela, with his birthday idea, she was honored to help. Honored, but not surprised. Because he is a super, super sweet kid, um, has always been. When Finn pulled up with his birthday gifts for the cats and dogs at the Humane Society there, they were caught off guard as well. They were surprised that a kid donated this much dog and cat food. Humane Shelter employee Sarah Buzard said... It's incredibly generous and so inspiring to see that young young folks care about shelter animals other than themselves on their special day, on their birthday of all, all days. And because NBC affiliate KMTR believes in acts of kindness like we do, they gave Finn a $150 check to spend on more donations or human birthday presents, whatever his kind soul decides. And uh, with just a few seconds, this this story reminded me, I recently took a tour of the Edmonds Food Bank here in town, and they were telling me actually that so many people who come to the food bank, and there's more than 800 families that use the Edmonds Food Bank, um, they are always short on especially cat food, but dog food as well. And so this little boy reminded me, I should probably give a shout out to that. Any local food bank, uh, but I know specifically the Edmonds Food Bank, people come in specifically for their animals sometimes, and not just for them, but their animals. So if you find yourself with some extra cat or dog food, or if you want to buy some when it's on sale, you can always drop it off at your local food bank. Thank you, Colleen. Mm-hmm.
I was just looking at G's watch. I've never seen a watch. I don't blame you for being distracted. He's got flair. <laughs> G Scott is back. Hey, I thought the uh, I thought TV was not interested in the Pac-12 because it was so boring, and yet here they are for game day. Man, college game day. Well, first of all, it's one of the biggest rivalries in college football, the University of Oregon versus the University of Washington. Um, right now, they are f- each 5-0. and Top 10 teams in the country going at each other here at Montlake. That's going to happen this weekend. One of the biggest things that makes this, I mean, there's so many reasons as to why that there's so much buildup and anticipation in college game day decided to come there. One of the biggest reasons is this. If UW can win this game, they could possibly and potentially have a Heisman Trophy winner on there. If they can win out. Right, they could beat. I think this Oregon team is definitely a threat because that is always a rivalry. They got a few more games to take care of, but this game right here, right now, Michael Penix is already uh, a Heisman Trophy winner, um, uh, front runner. If this continues, I think that's going to happen. Just to so you guys can know, Colleen, right now. It's been exactly 30 years since Don James has retired from being the coach of UW football. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. the Huskies have lost 20 of the last 28 games to Oregon. Whoa. So Oregon technically has been daddy, Colleen. <laughs> you know what Daddy, I mean? What about mother? I feel like mother has more power. I, I mean, you. hey, you know what? We can do it both ways. You can mm-hmm. call him mommy. You can call him daddy. <laughs> but if you want to go over the last coaches, you're like, well, well this coach and, and this coach. Well, let's go through the coaches. Don James was 15-3 and three against Oregon. Steve Sarkeesian was 0-5 against Oregon. Tyrone Willingham was 0-4 against Oregon. Chris Peterson was two and four against Oregon. The good news is, is that their current coach, Kalen DeBoer, last year was his first year going against them. He's one and zero against Oregon. Hmm. So, so perfect record. Yeah. So, Colleen, who do you think wins on Huskies. Saturday? Huskies. I'm an alum, so I have to say Huskies, even though I honestly don't care. But I'll say Huskies. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I cared more. I'm so much, I wish I could get into college football. Can you tell me? Maybe you can help me because I can get into the Seahawks. I can get into the professional stuff. I went to UW and yet I really don't care. But I know Ursula goes to the, a couple of friends of mine. They go to every single home game and they get decked out and they have so much. Like, what's different about going to Lumen Field or going to Husky Stadium? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same energy. It's it's the same thing. It all depends what you like. Like, you just said it yourself. You said, I'm into NFL football. I'm not into college football. And Mm -hmm. at least you're not faking the funk and and you're being honest about it. That's fine. But I'd like like a reason to get into it. Like, are the plays different? You know, sometimes you watch, like, the lower level sports and there's more skill involved rather than brute force, right? So is it something like that? It's kind of like your favorite bar. Right. Okay. Like, like, okay. Like, why is this bar better than the other one? I mean, both. I like both the alcohol is wet at both spots. You know what I mean? <laughs> the effect is but, the same, but, but the vibes are different. The vibes are different. Okay. Who you know is different. So in okay. college football, there might be some type of connection where your granddaddy or your auntie or your uncle they were fans. So you remember being as a kid, you were watching those games. It's nostalgic, all that kind okay. of thing. And then well, you also got to see the future of the NFL, right? 
I mean, you can. Maybe Sometimes. my kids will be that way because I was the first in my family to graduate from a four year and it was UW. And so maybe I'm the grandparent that one day sets the tone. Maybe I should start being more of a fan. Right. Huh? I, it, I think it's cool. Right. Like, I think it's cool. Like me growing up, I just got to tell you guys, like football. I wasn't. A, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, of course, and I wasn't a University of Illinois fan when it came to football. And so, unfortunately, I would root for that team. I, I starts with an M. It's the team up north. I don't know. I can't say the name. Anyway, but you guys know what I'm talking about. The maize and blue. The, I can't. I literally cannot physically can't say their name. But I used to root for that team as a kid. So being out here, when I see people that are UW alums and people that have grown up watching University of Washington, I think it's really cool to see the fandom go. So this Saturday is going to be a big game. It's going to be bragging rights on the table. We'll see what happens. Gee, Scott. Thank you, G. By the way, Chris will be back with a choke point at 835. But more about uh, fixing up I-90 across the pass, which turns out to be um, very challenging and very expensive and time-consuming. But right now, the Biden administration has announced that they're taking steps to crack down on what we call junk fees, those annoying and, yes, deceptive charges that show up right before you click the submit payment button. So here with details on how this change should affect consumers is the consumer man, and someone who I used to sit next to at the old Cairo building like a century ago, Herb Weisbaum. Hi, Herb. Hi, Dave. Nice to talk to you again. Yes. <laughs> so, it's been a long time. It has Pirates been a long of Penzance time. Penzance was the last time I Pirates saw you. Pirates of Penzance, that's right. <laughs> so tell us about these junk fees and, and what will change under the uh, Biden proposals. Sure. Well, they're annoying. As you said, they're costly. Uh, The Federal Trade Commission asked for comments and got thousands of comments from people about their displeasure with these fees that are everywhere. I mean, you you know, when you buy tickets to sporting events and theater and uh, when you go to purchase things online and when you rent cars and buy airline tickets and hotel rooms, I mean, they're just everywhere these days and they're hidden and they're a surprise at the end of the transaction. So the, the companies advertise a price, but that's not the price you're going to wind up paying. It's going to be a bigger price because of the fees, and that makes comparison shopping really difficult. I don't know if you've ever tried to comparison shop for something, and then all of a sudden the fees were tacked on, and you realize, well, maybe somebody else had a better price. So the Biden administration announced two things yesterday at a White House ceremony. First of all, the Federal Trade Commission announced a proposed rule, an actual rule, a junk fee rule that would eliminate these hidden dishonest fees and uh, and actually have penalties involved. They'd be the FTC would be able to sue companies if they violate this rule. Now, it's a proposal. It's going to take some months to get comments. They have a 60-day comment period and then put out the final rule sometime next year. But for the first time, and consumer groups are thrilled, there's actually going to be a rule that will limit these junk fees. And, and the other thing that happened, and we can talk about both more, is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, put out guidance Guidance is actually a way of saying to businesses, guys, this is how we're going to play the rules of the road. And they're basically telling banks that they can no longer charge fees for things that are very common that people would want to know, like what's my bank balance and how about I get my paper statement instead of having to sign onto the website and that sort of thing. Both of these, the president said, could literally save the American public more than a billion dollars a year, a billion dollars a year in junk fees. But, I mean, typically, as as with the carbon tax, the companies are going to make that money back somehow. Wouldn't they just raise prices? 
Well, they could, but then remember, if everybody's competing fairly, you'll be able to know who's giving you the best price. Right now, you can't always right. tell that because they give you, uh, you know, a, a phony price. If everybody's competing on price, somebody's going to want to have a lower price, and you'll be able to find that really easily. You can't do that these days. The thought from the FTC, based on all the comments, is that if businesses have to compete honestly, they'll start competing more often, and uh, as opposed to advertising a price that's fake, and you'll be able to know if you're really getting a good deal. And I, I want to give you an example of this. I recently came back from a trip to the United Kingdom, and I had to change my hotel room at the last minute and use the, the Marriott web, the Marriott service person to help me do the transaction. Mm -hmm. So she booked a room in London and said, well, that's whatever it was. I'm making up a number, 250 pounds for the room. And she says, well, let me get you the final price because, you know, there's all these fees and things. Da, da, da. And she goes, well, it's really 250 pounds a night. And I said, <laughs> yeah. It's Europe. They don't play these games. It's illegal to do that in Europe. You look at a price, you know the price. Right. He goes, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's really, it's really great. And it's good for businesses that are honest, and it's good for consumers as well. Yeah, I don't know why this, was, this started or what they, what they think they're pulling off here. But I guess, I guess in some cases, they want to show that they're not to blame for what feels like a high price. But for hotels, for example, they, they started tacking on a, a facility fee, I think it was, or an amenity Resort fee. Resort fee. Resort fee. Resort fee, yeah. And I yeah. guess there's also, I mean, I know there's a hotel motel tax uh, in Seattle, so that's a separate tax. But these other things right. are, are just made up stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, and one of the rules of the of the Federal Trade Commission that this rule goes through is that uh, you have to disclose all the fees up front, you can't hide them, and you can't make up bogus fees. Now, obviously, they would decide if it were bogus and then take the person to court if they believed it was bogus, but they said they heard complaints from people that they had a cleaning fee tacked onto their bill when they went to a, a place like Airbnb when they were required to clean the place, huh. or a convenience fee for tickets when there was nothing more convenient <laughs> about it. And so I think they're going to start looking at these fees that are just made-up ways to charge extra money. No one's questioning the taxes and, the, and the, that kind of thing when you rent a car or rent a hotel. And right. no one's even questioning the ability of a company to charge whatever they want. This is disclosure. They've got to tell you up front. And they've got to they've got to not create bogus fees that are meaningless that don't really do anything except change the basic price. But then for the banks, the the CFPB guidance says you can't charge this. You know, we're going to tell you you can't charge these fees at all for something really really simple like checking your bank account. You can't charge somebody. You can ding them to call up and say what's my what's my balance on my on my bank account. Yeah. Now, do the travel sites still do this like Expedia, or or do they have a, a button you can press that uh, you know say look. Uh, Cut through the BS. Show me the final price. There has been so much pressure from both consumer groups and the Biden administration that some sites have voluntarily started doing this. There is some change in the travel industry, which is a positive. There's also been a change with the tickets that they're showing this up front as well. Yeah. But again, this is voluntary. It can change at any point in time. And so therefore, I believe as a consumer advocate, there's a need for a rule, a regulation that says you have to do this, not if you feel like doing it. That's much better for everybody involved. I've been trying to take action on this uh, when when I when I'm booking something and I think I have the price and I start tackling the fees instead of uh, clicking submit, I click cancel. So I figure if mm -hmm. enough people do that because they keep records of, of when people leave the site, right? If enough people did mm -hmm. that, wouldn't they wouldn't they get the hint that we're fed up with this? <laughs> 
You know, these days, I don't know. With, you know, customer service and the way companies run their businesses now is so uh, different from when I started doing this, when they really cared about people and cared about annoying people. You know, that might be a good way to do it. I don't know. But um, they're going to get the message when this rule comes out, I'll tell you that. And they're going to be <laughs> required to do it. And the interesting thing, Dave, by the way, is the F- listen to this figure. The FTC said that its proposed rule would save us more than 50 million hours a year on wasted time searching for the true price, yeah. shopping for live events, hotel, motel, short-term lodging. That's the equivalent, the FTC uh, figures, of $10 billion in our time money wasted over the next decade. So we're talking about a lot of time spent here, or people who simply, and I know this is true, you get all the way through to the end, then all these fees pop up, and you go, well, I just spent 20 minutes searching around and getting and getting exactly. the seat I wanted to concert. I'm just going to pay it, and you're pissed off, and you, but what am I going to do? It shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't go to Taylor Swift and be pissed off because there are all these fees tacked on. Amen. Can I say pissed? Can I say pissed off on the radio? No, a little we'll, too late. Okay. Herb. We'll, <laughs> don't worry. We'll we'll edit it out of the podcast for people I with sensitive you. ears. By the, yes. By the way, I wanted to say hi to Herb. I haven't sat next to Herb for oh gosh, fifteen years. Yeah, it's been a long time. And let me tell you, you, guys, the last time I got up this early, it resulted in a colonoscopy. So this was a really big deal to join you guys. Let me tell you this. Hopefully this was better than a colonoscopy. (laughs) Much better. Much, much better. Good. Herb Weisbaum. Keep up the fight, Herb. Thank you. You can read more about this, by the way, with my story on checkbook.org. Checkbook.org. And that's Nikki time with Mickey Gomez. <laughs> we are still two months out from the major holidays, but apparently it's never too early to start planning your trip. No, it's not actually. And I spoke to uh, AAA spokesperson Lisa Ancio, who actually told me. And we really should be looking at booking our hotels, our airfares now for the holidays. Hmm. That's right. I've uh, I booked mine two months ago. I booked it so early. Good, I just you, I just hope the airlines remember that I booked it. <laughs> and you probably got a great rate for it, right? I have no idea. Who knows with all the fees? You have right? no idea. <laughs> okay. Well, Lisa Ancio of a uh, spokesperson for AAA says that uh, by the end of October, the last week in October, that's when prices are going to go up. That's when a lot of the deals that you're seeing right now are going to disappear. As a matter of fact, she said that um, basic economy prices from SeaTac to LA for Thanksgiving holiday are already sold out. So people Mm. are buying their tickets now. And she says that last year's epic security wait times and other issues, because of that, people are going to want to consider TSA pre-check. They're going to want to consider carry-on luggage, uh, getting that extra, you know, travel insurance and all of that. So that way, if there is a repeat of last year during Christmas time, remember the big debacle? Um, All of those added measures will hopefully get you through that seamlessly. Does the insurance protect you against crashes of uh, the software uh, that the airlines use? Because, uh, <laughs> because that no. was the problem, right? <laughs> it doesn't, unfortunately. Yeah, that was a big problem with one of the major airlines out there. Uh, with the big crash that they had, which created a ripple effect amongst the um, amongst the travel industry. Uh, no, but when that happens, the airline is responsible for making sure that you get to where you need to go. Refunds, incentives, things like that. What else did AAA tell you? 
Well, AAA said that if you don't buy your tickets now or if you don't, you know, decide, hmm, should we go or should we stay? You're going to be paying a pretty penny uh, the closer we get, especially for the Thanksgiving holiday and uh, the December holidays that we have coming up. So now's definitely the time to buy. Hmm. Boo. I, I don't know who wants to travel during the holidays. It's become so I certainly unmanageable. Don't. Yeah, it's become so unmanageable mm-hmm. that I'm just like, why don't we just plan a vacation in a time of the year to see family if you have family out of town i'm lucky not to but yeah like in an in an off time and i know you have to take off time from work you may not get the the holiday off automatically or you have to pull your kids out of school but i don't know i i saw a meme the other day of of parents in a car and the kids were in the back just screaming and the caption said (laughs) on our way to make family memories like why are we doing this to ourselves I will remember last year I got stuck in Vegas, yes, called Sully. Whoa, I knew! I had to rent a van with strangers just to get back home, and Sully navigated the whole trip back. And uh, it, it was it was absolutely awful. Not only was it expensive, it was just, my kids are going, are we home? Are we there yet? And then, mm. as a matter of fact, my son looked at me a couple of days ago, and he goes, please tell me we are not traveling for the holidays. And I looked at him and I said, nope, we have a beautiful new home in Normandy Park. We are staying here. And he just went, thank you so much. So even the kids don't want to travel this holiday season. Are you still in touch, by the way, with the people you made the drive with? I am. I'm in touch with one of them. He has a sister that lives in Renton. He's a truck driver Mm -hmm. and we're on Facebook and every once in a while I'll comment on his page. He'll comment on mine. He's such a great guy and I'm so glad that we met him and I completely trust him. Yes. Cute. So you've given up on car trips, huh? (laughs) I've just given up on holiday travel. We're going to take a family vacation um, as long as Sully approves it in February sometime. I get it on my calendar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But at any rate, buy your holiday tickets now. Otherwise, you're going to be paying a pretty penny, especially if you're a family of four. I want to say this. I know when you when you travel with your kids and you buy those basic economy tickets and you figure out, oh, my gosh, we're not sitting together. What do we do? Well, you have to get on the plane sometimes and ask people to swap seats. Uh, Lisa Ancio says if you want to avoid doing that, you got to buy your tickets now and then you can actually pay an extra fee to ensure that all four of you or you (laughs) and your children are sitting together. (laughs) Togetherness fee, of course. (laughs) Yes. Mickey Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.